Welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. On today's show, Mike remembers the day the music died. And Ian remembers the automat. Is the automat back? Find out. Well, welcome to another edition of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. We're very happy to have you with us. We're all here. Mike, we're going to go right to you. You're going to talk to us about... The day the music died. 1971, 40 years ago. That was a big year for me. It was the year I graduated from high school and uh, actually entered adulthood. I don't know if I'll ever become an adult, but according to, I guess, the government, I became an adult. I actually got to be among the first one of the 18-year-olds to get the vote, too. Mm -hmm. Interesting enough, but it was 40 years ago on May 26, 1971. A 20-year-old suburban New York songwriter who never held down a real job other than delivering newspapers back in the late 1950s on shivering winter mornings went into a studio and recorded a song. Actually, it was a sprawling musical yarn he had written back in 1969, a few years earlier, while sitting in a coffee shop, you know, thinking about all that dreamy creative stuff that unemployed ex-paperboy songwriters think about. The song, for the most part, was inspired by an airplane crash in 1959 on a freezing night in Clear Lake, Iowa, a crash that took the lives of rock and roll superstars Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. Big Bopper Richardson. The three had packed into a small plane after a music concert, and shortly thereafter, right after takeoff, the plane crashed into a field, killing all three musicians. The date, to be exact, was February 3rd, 1959, but for everyone in the past 50 years who have listened to Top 40 radio, read the newspapers, or watched biopics at the movies or on home video, that day has and will forever be known as the day the music died. But back to the slacker songwriter. In the course of writing the tune that highlighted the death of the three rising stars of American pop music, this guitar-playing storyteller also injected into his musical tribute to Buddy, Richie, and the Big Bopper, a lyrical masterpiece about the birth, life, and death of the American culture of the 1950s and the brash, flash, and dash that was the 1960s. The song is called American Pie, 40 years old this month, a tune its creator profusely injected with cryptic references to many of the characters that came and went during those two mid-20th century yin and yang decades of American pop culture. So bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry And them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye Singing, this'll be the day that I die This'll be the day that I die Okay, baby boomers, you know I'm referring to Don McLean, of course The creator of this, the number five song of the 365 most famous songs of the 20th century, according to the Recording Industry of America's records. Shortly following his recording of American Pie in late May 1971, Don McLean's riveting musical saga about the mid-20th century hit the nation's radio airwaves and became one of the most, and is still one of the most, played American pop tunes of all time. Even though this song was over eight minutes long and had to be split up on side one and side two on a 45 record. 
McLean layered his pastry pan of American pie with a mincemeat mixture of politics, music, government, religion, crime, and various wantonly random events and people who passed through the 50s and 60s majorly or as minor players. In his lyrics to American Pie, he, he wove a tapestry of basically what went on in my formative years of the 1960s. But how the song's lyrics were interpreted by my teenage self in 1971 and my rookie senior citizen self of today, 40 years later, is much like, well, how a lot of people interpret the U.S. Constitution, a Frederick Fellini film, or a knocking sound coming from under the hood of your car while sitting in traffic. We're just a half-hour show here, and I have to share that time with the two other G-men that make up Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. So do I recall what was revealed in the lyrics of American Pie? Well, yes, I do. But you'll have to take me out for some whiskey in rye. Ian, it was whiskey in rye, not whiskey and rye, referring to rye, New York, where you could drink at a whiskey bar because the watering hole across the bridge, the watering hole named The Levee, in Don McLean's hometown of New Rochelle, had been closed down because of a prohibition ordinance that made the bars like the levee dry. <laughs> Surely I jest, but of course you know that in the song American Pie, the jester was Bob Dylan. And oh, by the way, the king was Elvis and the queen was, believe it or not, Connie Francis. These suppositions seem to be majority opinion all across the internet when you Google the term Don McLean American Pie. What the lyrics mean to those thousands of baby boomers like me who have listened to the tune hundreds of times are as vast and, well, almost as loony, lame, or conspiracy-stoked as opinions about the JFK assassination, John Glenn's space mission, and the belief that Mick Jagger is the devil incarnate. All three, by the way, are mentioned in American Pie, to my interpretation, that is. But don't get hot and fired up under the collar if you disagree because, as the song says, fire is the devil's only friend. Don McLean himself refuses to reveal the precise meanings of each line in American Pie, but many people have attempted to produce their own interpretations of the song. While being interviewed in the 1980s, McLean was asked for probably the probably a thousand, one thousand, two thousandth time, what does the song American Pie mean to you? His answer, it means never having to work again for the rest of my life. <laughs> Forty years later, I remember my life in late 1971 and most of 1972, and the soundtrack deep in the nerve endings that connect to long-term recall often begins with various lines of American Pie. In 2002, the song was featured in a Chevrolet ad. It showed a guy in his Chevy singing along to the end of the tune. At the end, he gets out, and it is clear that he was not going to leave his Chevy until the song American Pie was over. The ad played up the heritage of Chevrolet, which has a long history of being mentioned in famous songs. The line in American Pie that was used in the Chevy commercial was, you know, drove my Chevy to the levee. I can relate. In 1971, I was a lonely teenage bronking buck with a pink carnation and a pickup truck. But my pickup truck was a Ford F-150, not a Chevy. But hey, like I say, the meaning of the song American Pie, as you'll learn on the Internet, is constantly open to interpretation. For Galaxy Nostalgia Network, I'm Mike Bragg. What a great piece, Mike. What an excellent, excellent piece. I've often wondered about the lyrics on, on that song, and you've, what you've told us has made a lot of it make, make sense. It has, been, it has been the stuff of Internet since the Internet began in the mid-'90s, and there's stuff you'll find on the Internet that was written about this song in 1999, 2002, that people are still arguing about and adding to. 
And Don McLean has played it straight here by not telling us what these things mean so we can figure it out ourselves. He's kept the mystery going. Yeah. I think I think he was just sometimes, what, in the words of Sigmund Freud, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> Do you think that Don McLean initially came up with the idea of not revealing what exactly the lyrics meant to keep that mystery going? Do you, or do you think that over the years he goes, you know what, maybe I better not say anything? Uh, you know, what do you think happened? I don't think he started out thinking that he was going to sit there and pin, pin this uh, chronological history of the 50s and the 60s. And I think once he got going with it, it just pretty much wrote itself, and I think he probably had draft after draft after draft, but... Mm-hmm. Imagine a song, what, eight, eight, I think it's eight minutes and 24 seconds, Ian, and in AM radio in the 70s, uh, when I, when I did my, uh, my rookie internship over at Pasadena College, I don't think you could play a song legally that was over three minutes and 30 seconds. Oh there, we'll have to ask Mike Z over at Saturday Night Sock sure. Hop about that, but there was a rule in broadcast that you couldn't go over three and a half minutes. Here comes Don McLean, and in fact, I might add that in seventy late 71, when the song aired, there were many stations across the country that would not play it because it was too long. Oh. And they felt, it, they felt it was gibberish, it was rambling gibberish that made no sense. But it was a political indictment, a generation indictment, a culture indictment. There's a lot of stuff in that song if you sit down and listen to the words and don't even dare going up to the Internet and typing in meaning of American pie because <laughs> you're going to get page after page. And it seems the common thread is, as I mentioned in my story, Bob Dylan's in there, uh, Mick Jagger. There's references to the Altamont rock concert where the Hells Angels beat the guy to death in the crowd at the Rolling Stone concert. Wow. story about John Glenn, uh, who was... Mentioned John Glenn in the song, who was actually Jack Flash. Jack being a short for John Glenn, and you can really have some fun with it. And yeah, like I say, at seventy-one, I graduated from high school, got my first full-time job, uh, started college, and there was this song, and it, it was almost haunting, very melodic, very haunting. It's a centerpiece of uh, my early years out on my own after high school. I'm going to be tacky right here. I wonder how much Don McLean has made on this uh, record. Well. <laughs> You know, I think he's kept it cool, but he went on. You know, Ian, I'm glad you mentioned that, too, because uh, we've got a few seconds here. I'm going to talk to you about a couple of other Don McLean songs. American Pie was not my favorite Don McLean song. It still is not. It's a memorable song, and it brings back a lot of memories. It has a lot of message to it, but Perry Como's And I Love You So. Really? Written by Don McLean. Wow. It's a 73 mega super hit for Perry Como. 73, two years after American Pie. Vincent was a tribute by Don McLean, who, in my research, I know Don McLean suffered from depression in his early years, and Vincent was a tribute to the 19th century Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh. It only reached number 12 on the Billboard Top 100, but it proved a huge hit. He had a song called Castles in the Air, which is my favorite Don McLean song of all time. He, this guy is just a lyrical genius. Uh, a tribute to Fred Astaire, Wonderful Baby. Remember that one? He yes, had? I do. But I, haven't, I haven't heard it in years. Yeah, primarily rejected by pop radio stations. It reached number one on the Billboard Easy Listening Survey. So Don McLean was all over the all over the charts. He could he could really deliver. Mm. He wrote a song called Superman's Ghost, a tribute to George Reeves, who played Superman, of course, as we've discussed before on television in the fifties. And he wrote songs about the Vietnam War. He wrote one that I remember called The Grave. And there were songs that were written by people who were inspired by Don McLean's writing, Killing Me Softly with his song. 
Wow. It was written by a songwriter over in L.A. who sat in on a Don McLean concert one night, was so touched by his lyrics and his, his melodic playing that she uh, pinned Killing Me Softly with his song, which was made wow. famous, of course, by Roberta Flack. I didn't know that. How interesting. And the other thing that I find fascinating, Mike, that you mentioned that American Pie was uh, split on both sides of a 45. You got side I one, side two. I never knew that. How how interesting, yeah. You know, side one was four minutes and change, and side two was the other side. Amazing. So, Amazing. how about that? How about that, yeah. Yeah. Mike, thanks. What an excellent piece and a lot of great information there. We appreciate that very, very much. Thank you. Well, we're going to pause right now for our retro commercial, and then we're going to be back with you. Ian Rose is going to talk to us about automats. How interesting. We're waiting to hear about that one. Stay tuned. You're listening to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. Coming April 17th, the unexpected, the new Ford Mustang. Brilliant new kind of car. A new generation of Fords for the new breed of Americans who want stick shift action and room for four, who collect sports car badges and trading stamps, who want the elegance of a European touring car and, till now, have to settle for basic transportation. This is for them. This is Mustang. With an unexpected variety of options, Mustang is the one car that's designed to be designed by you. Get ready to meet the unexpected April 17th at your Ford dealers. Mustang is only days away. Well, those Mustangs were cool little cars, weren't they? Oh, they were great. I wish cars. I had about a dozen of those. You uh, watch, watch the TV auctions on Speed Vision lately, see what a 65 Mustang original shape goes for? No, what are they going for now? You name it. Oh, boy. 40,000, 50,000, 60,000, that's even uh, in the tough times. Wow. Little Ford Mustang, that was Lee Iacocca's baby. Great little cars. But you know, auto mats aren't necessarily those mats that you put in the floor of your uh, 65 Mustang. They were actually your grandma's fast food restaurant, and Ian's going to tell us a little more about how grandma spent her change. You know, fast foods are a way of life now. You can trace them starting with McDonald's, which started its expansion in the 1950s. Now, they eventually ended up in the former Soviet Union. Big Macs and Bolshevism. It seemed incompatible. I mean, here we have a top example of American enterprise right where the Great Russian Revolution took place. I guess when they said, you deserve a break today, that included communists. You know, you could tell when McDonald's went Russian, that's when they spotted Ronald McDonald talking up his sleeve. But before Happy Meals and before Ronald McDonald and shakes and burgers and fries, there was another fast food outlet. It never quite caught on like Mickey D's, but it made a big impression. The Automat. Decades ago... They were serving in New York and Philadelphia. Horn and Hardart was the name. I was there. More on that coming up. And speaking of, by the way, in 25 words or less, what do you, Mike Bragg, or you, Gilbert Smith, know about automats? <laughs> Anything. Oh, I think we're about ready to hit the intersection here with the same thought about what, Candid Camera? Yeah, you were going to mention that. Yeah, <laughs> Candid Camera. I was I was raised on the West Coast, and, yeah, I, so was and I. I grew up even before. It was amazing when the first McDonald's came to my town, but an automat. I heard about the automats on an episode of Candid Camera where they were in New York City somewhere and the guy would put a couple of quarters in the machine and go to pick up his 
slice of pie and a hand would reach in from the other side and take it back away from him. So, yeah, that's that's probably my full extent of an automat, but that was that was an early vending machine, right, Ian? Well, you, you could look at it that way. It was I'm going to mention you. It was kind of like it had an area, a, a cafeteria area, and then it had an area with windows. But it wasn't a machine. There there were humans behind. Oh, it was somebody. Yes, yeah, so it had to be somebody. Okay. there. they didn't materialize that at all. Right. Now, my knowledge, I've seen old films, and uh, it was just like a wall of chrome and glass. That's right. With little doors that That's you open. True. I also grew up on the West Coast. I never got to experience an automat, but uh, Ian, tell us more about that. Well, it started uh, according to Wikipedia. They started more than a century ago. Smithsonian.com says automats were America's first major fast food chain. Yes, automats are a fast food restaurant where simple food and drinks are served by coin and bill-operated vending machines. This food, sandwiches, rolls, pies, and cakes, as I recall, were seen through windows. You didn't necessarily see a hand coming at you. And when you inserted the proper coins, the window opened up. Inspired by Quisiana Automat in Berlin, the first automat opened in 1902 in Philadelphia, and as I said, by Horn and Hardart. Now, did anybody notice? 1902 was the year that Ray Kroc was born, founder of the McDonald's expansion. The automat came to New York in 1912. I came along many years later. My favorite was the automat at Times Square. In one area, it served food cafeteria style at moderate prices. But I preferred the other area where they served coffee, cakes, and pies from those windows. Coffee came out of the mouth of a small silver gargoyle. You had to turn a crank, and all it cost were two nickels. Pie, I think, was 30 cents, a quarter in a nickel. So in one sense, and in one part of it, these automats served a similar function as today's Starbucks. Now, granted, Starbucks has different coffees and pastries, and there's sandwiches and granola. Back then, it was 40 cents, and today's Starbucks is $4. <laughs> in spite of the cheap prices, the automats look richer than you might think. You were mentioning this, uh, Gilbert. There, were, there was inlaid marble in some areas. Seats moved. Water was free. Upstairs, they were serving an all-you-can-eat meal for $2. And the big window fronted on Times Square. What a view. Back then, people were demanding that the country needed a good 10-cent cigar because we already had the 10-cent coffee. In the 1960s, due to cost increases, the automat had to raise a cup of coffee to... 15 cents. Oh, my goodness. They actually put posters at their front windows explaining the cost increase. Apparently, some people thought the 10-cent coffee was their inherent right. These automats were popular with celebrities such as Walter Winchell, Irving Berlin, and Neil Simon. Can you imagine me, Ben, if I were a celebrity? Walter Winchell had his table at the store club, and I would have my table at the automat. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. New York and all the ships on the harbor. Automats were also popular with out-of-work songwriters and actors. Originally, the machines took only nickels. In the original format, a cashier would sit in a change booth in the center of the automat behind a wide marble counter with uh, five to eight rounded depressions where the coins were tossed. When I was there, the cashier would never count the coins. Example, I'd give him a dollar and ask for 20 nickels. He'd scoop up nickels from a big container in both hands, and then he'd put down what was in his right hand and what was in his left, and he never counted them. There were 10 nickels in one hand and 10 nickels in the other. Always. Never made a mistake. <laughs> yes, the automat. The peak of its popularity was from the Great Depression to the post-war years. But the growth of the suburbs and the rise in fast foods catering to motorists threatened the automats. At one time, there were 40 automats in New York. The last one closed in 1991. 
There are other versions of the Automat, you know, on Amtrak and in Japan and in the Netherlands. In an attempt to bring back Automats to New York City, a company called Bamon opened an East Village store in 2006. Wikipedia says it closed its doors in 2009. Now, for a while there, their website was still up in recent weeks. I just checked the Internet now. I don't see their website anymore. As I wrap up, think back to New York and Broadway of decades ago, where one thin dime wouldn't even shine your shoes, but it bought you a cup of coffee at the Automat. I'm Ian Tencent Rose. Ian, you just you just triggered some memories in my mind. Hold on while I wipe the blood out of my ears. <laughs> I just remember that I, I am wrong about Candid Camera. The first Automat reference was in the movies. I remember it now. It was, what, 1962. It was the movie with Doris Day and Cary Grant, A Touch of Mink. Remember it? I don't remember that scene. I didn't see the flick. She bought what looked like a pot pie, and she was sitting in a table when Gig, Gig Young drops by on an errand from, from his buddy, Cary Grant. From the Automat kitchen, her roommate, who was Audrey Meadows, she watches Doris Day headed outside with Gig Young, and there on the counter were the little salads that she was placing in the windows of the Automat. I remember it now. And you also said about coffee. I did some quick research. Irving Berlin wrote a song called Let's Have Another Cup ah, of Coffee. Yes. He was inspired to write that song sitting at an Automat. Wouldn't you know it? Amazing stuff, and let, Let's have another piece of pie. Let's have another also, cup of coffee. Hey, let's, let's have, have another, another piece of pie. pie. Oh, both from the automat, then. Yeah. yeah. It, was, uh, it, it was featured in the 19, <laughs> 1932 musical, Face the Music. Oh, I was going to say, that was a Depression-era song, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, 30s. Yeah, Depression-era song. It's a neat little song. I think the, the, the line that precedes it is something is something about somewhere there's a rainbow. Da, 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 da. I, we'll have to look that up. But that is a line that comes before, let's have another cup of coffee, let's have another piece of pie. Yeah. A neat little song. Good stuff, Ian. Good one. I'm so sad to see them go. Can you imagine a $2 all-you-can-eat upstairs, and you're looking out at Times Square? Wow. Can, you, wow. You, you couldn't get a buy like that. I'm today. still trying to get the operation, though. You had people, in, you know, obviously waitress types in nice waitress uniforms. Somebody would put their quarter or their dime in there. The They'd be able to lift, yeah, nickel. They'd, They'd lift their, the window up, take their selection out. That would make that slot empty. And then whoever was the staff behind would have to fill that back up and, what, reset the coin slot? Well, that's true, but they usually reset it after there were several empties. I think it worked on a cylinder. Oh, so it dropped, a drop several, down. several in a row. Like oh. an old Coke machine. It actually, yeah, it would oh. kind of turn around, yeah. and, and, you would, oh. and then they'd fill them up. Interesting. But oh. there were people behind that that were keeping them filled. So obviously wow. behind, behind this wall of, of glass and chrome where you were opening up these little doors, there was a whole kitchen back there where they were cooking, and right? Yeah, there were people refilling those there, windows. Yes, yeah, and but they were refilling. The, yeah, there was a, 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 a cafeteria-style food, too, right. okay. if you wanted to wait online. So you had the two things going. And, and a lot of people, I've heard the stories about people going into the automats and getting some ketchup on hot water. Remember I said the water yeah. was free? Yeah. And then <laughs> making themselves free soup. My grandfather told me about stories uh, during the Depression where you yeah. get the ketchup yeah. in the hot water and you'd crunch up some soda crackers yes, and, and make true. a type of chili. Yeah, oh my <laughs> with God. With Tabasco sauce and that. Oh, wow, you know. yeah. Yeah. And they eventually did away with that, Ian, because the people, too many people were coming in there and getting uh, and making the, the, the faux tomato soup. You know, that's a good point, and I don't know whether they, they did away with it or people just self-regulated. Okay. You know, t- today, if you had something like that, it would oh. be abused, oh, it would be it? abused, yeah. Yeah. So in those days, well, it seemed people... Uh, and people talk about the Depression this way, by the way. Yes. Even with the Depression on, and you think people would be rioting for food, there was a certain propriety amongst people. You've heard these stories, haven't you? Well, there's a certain propriety, sure. I, yeah. Actually, there were people in this country, I hear, that actually starved to death, but in the big cities, that... I, 
that was a uh, probably a killing offense. Yeah. To break in someone's house or steal food from someone. And sure. You yeah. see the pictures, the old Dorothea Lang pictures of uh, these guys in their suits, their business suits, selling apples for a nickel oh, sure, on street yeah. corners. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And people, uh, the, the men like that waiting in the bread line. Yeah. You know. And, oh, gosh. Uh, so be, to be able to pop a nickel into a slot and get yourself a cup of coffee sure. or, or a bowl of soup for a nickel, I, sure. that was probably almost a luxury during the Depression. Yeah. So what was your favorite food at the Automat? Yeah. I like the simple stuff. I was like the... Um, because you went in there for a quickie. Uh-huh. It was a coffee and a cake. Okay. And, um, and of course, you know, the, the whole process of getting the coffee, we had to grind it through. You, 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 you pulled it, you did the crank, and it came out the gargoyle's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and you got, a, you know, a little creamer and a sugar. and a. But you could also go there for a full dinner, right? Yes, through okay. the cafeteria. Oh, I, oh, I got if you. If you want okay. to go through there, you'd have... Okay. Yeah, and that would be in, in, relatively inexpensive. The automat was for a quick snack. But uh, yeah, oh, okay, yeah, that's true. Okay, okay. Were those automats open twenty four hours a day? I'm pretty sure they were. Okay, if, I, if memory serves. Uh-huh. If memory serves. And now the question I always ask about food in the old days was the food really, really good at the automat? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you went there for the quality. <laughs> oh, the pies weren't bad. What kind of pie? All kinds of flavors. It, yeah, it was everything: apple and uh, peach and all that. And, you know, the regular stuff. You know, we got to do a story soon on fast food. Hmm. Because uh, yeah. fast food did not start with McDonald's, far from it. They called it fast food, I think, when the drive-up windows were built. But fast food, Nathan's was a fast food. Nathan's really? been around like, since the late teens sure. of the century. I'd slap a, slap a hot dog in a bun. There's the mustard. Give me my quarter. <laughs> Probably faster than getting a Big Mac nowadays. Oh, yeah. How interesting. Yeah, yeah. so the... Uh, the name Horn and Hardart. I've heard that name, Horn and Hardart. That yeah. was the uh, that was yeah. the company that ran them. Horn and Hardart. Yeah, mechanical geniuses, though. <laughs> yes, definitely, yeah. definitely. Well, hopefully they will uh, come back at some point. Well, I, I can only hope so, but I'm not I'm not counting the days. Yeah. Ian, thanks very much for that, bringing back some good food memories mm. of that time period, and. Um, we're going to turn it back over to Ian to uh, close the show out. Well, all righty. We'll say a little, uh, we'll, we'll put a wrapper on it. Yes, put a wrapper on it as we always do. And, you know, uh, put it in a to-go box. In, yeah. Yes, in a to-go box, and it's going to be not fast food, but fast fast galaxy. Yeah. <laughs> fast galaxy moonbeam. Shall right. I give them the two sites that they ought to be? Please. Sure. The email, galaxymoonbeamnightsite at gmail.com, and galaxymoonbeamnightsite.com for the website. So that's what, to, and we're on Facebook? We're on Facebook. Yes. Visit the Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside page on Facebook. Uh, friend us if you are a Facebook fan and join us on our page. I'm Ian. I'm Smitty. And I'm Mike. And goodbye. Thank <laughs> you.